This morning, we're going to find ourselves in the book of Acts, beginning in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. At Ascension, uh, Nate is going through the book of Philippians, but my experience uh, over the past months has been that I have wandered from church to church, uh, including now here. Uh, I have filled pulpits at um, at, uh, Trinitas, uh, Hope Bellevue in, in Oregon and Everett Westminster, and eventually I decided uh, I just need to start with a book and, and stop trying to find a text uh, and preaching on what I love to preach on. Uh, I just need to open God's Word and let it direct me. And so um, as I preach here and then as I preach at Ascension, um, I'm just going to keep marching through the book of Acts. And so it might be kind of choppy. I'll be with you guys for the next couple months uh, it might be kind of choppy for you and my own uh, body back at Ascension, um, but uh, I trust the Lord will use it to bless nonetheless. Uh, by way of uh, brief introduction, uh, because I won't be dealing with this uh, too much in, in the sermon, um, I'll just say that Acts is, is authored by Luke, the beloved physician and the traveling companion of Paul. Uh, And we know that uh, because the introduction makes clear, as well as the writing style and the syntax and the grammar and the themes, that whoever authored the Gospel of Luke was also the author of Acts. And we know from the early titles attributed to Luke's Gospel and early church tradition that, that that Gospel was in fact written by Luke, meaning that Acts as well was his composition. And furthermore, again, Luke was a doctor, so he was uh, an erudite man. He was an able uh, writer, apparently, a very educated individual. And uh, again, he traveled with Paul. So on multiple accounts, he was very equipped to write both his gospel account and then here, the account of Acts. So, Let's go to his word now, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This morning, Eric, is this, is this mine or yours? This is mine. Okay, thanks. That's a good thing to know these days. Whose, whose cup is whose? Um, this morning in these uh, opening words of the book of Acts, we get not only a blueprint for the entire book, but we also get a blueprint for understanding our own witness as believers here and now in the 21st century. And this word witness is going to be the central word this morning as we look at this passage. And that's because it appears in what many consider to be something of a summary or outline of the entire book of Acts. And that's verse 8, where Jesus gives to the apostles their central task. In verse 6, the apostles ask what is, in my judgment, a very reasonable question. Jesus had just conquered death. He'd risen from the grave. And now the promised Messiah, the son of David, that is the king of Israel, he himself is appearing to them and speaking about the kingdom of God, we read in verse 3. And so they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And of course, we'd all like to know when Christ will establish his kingdom in full, because it will be a time of universal blessing and peace and joy for us God's people. But then how does Jesus answer? He doesn't chastise them, and he doesn't tell them it's a bad question, but he does tell them that it's not for them to know the timing. That's not their concern. And then in verse 8, here's the summary verse. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in these words, we have a summary, really, again, not only of Acts, but of what the church has been up to for the last 2,000 years. That's talking about Jesus. That's what we do. It's our main occupation. Alongside worship and witness, or alongside worship, excuse me, witness is our main thing. And we witness in the hope that people from every corner of the globe will come to confess the name of Christ. Of course, for all sorts of reasons, and I'm guessing most of us would readily admit, it's not always easy witnessing to Christ. It's not always something that we are excited about. We fear what others will think of us. We lack confidence. We're afraid we won't know what to say or that we won't have all the answers. And the list goes on. And so for many and various reasons, you and I stand in need of continual encouragement when it comes to our calling to be witnesses to Christ. And that's why I pray and I trust we'll receive from God's Word this morning that very thing, encouragement. And there are two truths I want us to see here as we think about our witness. And the first truth is this. The living Christ gives power to our witness. The living Christ gives power to our witness. Our text begins in verses 1 and 2 with Luke summarizing the first volume he had written to Theophilus. And briefly, we're not told much about Theophilus, but it's probably safe to assume that he himself was a Christian. 
And he may, uh, he may very well have been a patron who helped fund Luke's writing projects. We see that Luke's gospel and Acts here are both dedicated to him, even though surely they're meant for a very broad audience. And so at least formally, Luke writes to Theophilus, and he opens with this summary of his gospel account. He writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And in the verses that follow, we'll get to see what those pre-ascension commands are. But here I want to draw our attention to a particular word that appears in the summary we just read, and that word is the word began. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Here at the beginning of this second volume of Luke, he is making the point that the earthly ministry of Jesus is really only the beginning of his work. Christ's ascension, we'll see, is not his retirement. He's not on vacation. He's not leaning back on a recliner. Rather, the ascension marks a transition from the work which Christ began on earth, but now continues from his heavenly throne. Throughout Acts, the entire book, Luke is very clear in making the point that Christ is the one building his church, just as we read that he told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in Acts 2.47, we read, And the Lord, that's Jesus' title, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then in Acts 11, when the Jews scatter because of persecution, some end up preaching the good news of Antioch. And Luke writes, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Also in Acts, people are healed by the power of Christ's name. And some end, uh, excuse me, and as the witness of the church spreads, it is the word of the Lord that is said to increase or even prevail. In Acts 19, we read this summary statement, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The apostles are the mouthpiece, but it is the word of the Lord that is spoken. And so the list could go on, but especially relevant to our passage this morning is the relationship we see in Acts between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, Peter says of Jesus, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And there Peter's speaking about the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And according to Peter, Jesus is the one who pours out His Spirit, who is, in fact, in the mystery of the Trinity, His Spirit. And so in Acts 5, Peter calls the Spirit the Spirit of the Lord. And in Acts 16, Luke calls the Spirit the Spirit of Jesus. And it's those titles, actually, the Spirit of the Lord and the Spirit of Jesus, these titles give us an understanding of why Jesus, here at the beginning of Acts, told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem. In verse 3, Luke Luke speaks of the post-resurrection appearances 
of Jesus, and we'll come back to that. And then in Luke 4 of our text, we read, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, a lot could be said about these two baptisms, but the summary version is this. John's baptism was a symbolic cleansing. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in preparation of the coming Messiah. The baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, on the other hand, that baptism was about receiving power from the risen Christ, specifically for the purpose of witness and the building up of the church, Christ's people. Again, much more could be said, but what's clear is that John's baptism did not confer the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the baptism at Pentecost would. And that's extremely important because up until this point, the apostles had always had Jesus with them, face to face. But now, now that Jesus had accomplished the work that he came to do, most centrally the work of atoning for our sins, the sins of his people and rising victorious, now he is poised to take his heavenly throne alongside the Father. And so the disciples, they're soon to be without Christ. And here he is about to give them a mission that will soon require supernatural power. Right? And his leaving, therefore, is not a happy thought. We recall the words of Jesus in John 14 at this point, where he says to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And we ask ourselves, how in the world is it that the disciples would do the very works that Christ himself did, and greater works than these even, especially if he's going to leave? And we get the answer in the very next verse in John's Gospel. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Christ says that he is the one who will do his work in and through us. And how will he do it? Again, another answer two verses later. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And skipping a verse, Jesus continues, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Speaking of his ascension, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And this whole dialogue in John's Gospel is about the very thing we see here in Acts 1. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 4 to wait for the promise of the Father. And here it's unclear whether Jesus is speaking of what we just read in John's Gospel or of Old Testament promises, because in the Old Testament as well, God promises to pour out His Spirit. Or perhaps Jesus is speaking about both. But in any case, the Father has promised to give the Spirit. And the apostles are to wait for this promise to be fulfilled. Because apart from the Spirit, they are powerless. So in verse 8, after somewhat sidestepping the disciples' question about the timing of the kingdom, 
Jesus gives the apostles their work, which has come to be called the Great Commission. And of course, we are familiar with Matthew's version, but it's also given here. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Global witness starting in Jerusalem. That's the mission. That's the task. And it would be impossible were it not for the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what do we see in Acts 1-7? through The apostles witness in Jerusalem and the church is established. In chapters 8-12, through the apostles continue their witness now in Judea and Samaria. And the church grows. And then in Acts 13-28, through with Paul's missionary journeys and eventually his voyage to Rome, the apostolic witness begins to extend to the ends of the earth. And all of this, in fact, in the face of persecution. What we learn in our passage here is that the witness is only successful because of Christ's presence and power by his Spirit. And so John Stott, the 20th century pastor and theologian, he says that a more accurate title for this book, rather than just the Acts of the Apostles, he says that perhaps a better title might be the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles. Of course, we celebrate this morning that Jesus is not bound to the first century. The promise of his presence in and with his people is for us as well. He is the resurrected one, the living one, who today is active in and through our very witness. And that's how he is continuing to build his church. That's what makes our evangelism not a hopeless endeavor. It's because we don't do it alone, but Christ is present with us. In Acts 16, we read of Paul and Silas and Timothy speaking to a group of women outside the city of Philippi. And Luke writes, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then we read that her and her household were baptized. And that passage gives us a wonderful prayer to pray. Lord, would you open the heart of my neighbor? Would you open the heart of my family member or my coworker? And whether we're talking with someone across the street or, or Zooming with a friend states away, we pray for and we anticipate that Christ will, in fact, work. And of course, we know that not all will come to faith in our witness, but we trust that indeed some will as Christ opens their heart to receive his word. And it's worth noting here that new life clearly takes a lot more than just the imparting of information or evidence. And personally, I am a very strong believer in apologetics. I'm all about defending our faith with reason and with evidence. I think we have a a secure foundation historically and rationally for why we believe. But here we see that the apostles, they'd seen the risen Lord, and he himself had shown them many convincing proofs for 40 days. And so if this were your first time reading Acts, you might even anticipate here Christ saying, 
Okay, then no time to lose. Let's get on with it. You got what you need. Let's start our witness. But he doesn't say that. In fact, it's just the opposite. In verse 4, we read, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. And that's because the real power in our witness comes not just from argumentation, but from Christ speaking through us by His Spirit and softening people's hearts to receive what He has to say. Jesus is the main player in the book of Acts as well as in our witness today. That's the first point that I want us to see this morning. The living Christ gives power to our witness. The second truth from our passage is this. Our witness concerns the living Christ. If the living Christ gives power to our witness, then our witness also concerns the living Christ. Now again, we're looking at the opening verses of Acts, what we might call the prologue, and they're setting us up to understand the rest of the book, and specifically the apostolic witness to Christ. And one of the questions people have asked reading the New Testament, but especially Acts, is what were the apostles' main talking points? In their witness, what did they make the main thing? We might ask ourselves something similar. What exactly should we highlight when telling others about Jesus? Of course, a whole lot of people would like us to just stick with Jesus' ethical teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we want to know what does Scripture teach and what does Scripture show us about witnessing to Christ? What are the main things that we see in God's Word? And here in the prologue, but then also as we read the rest of Acts, it's quite clear that the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Christ were the central realities that the apostles were to testify to. And I'll just say here, I think that Christ died for sinners is a wonderful summary of the gospel. Because it is in fact the centerpiece of the gospel. Apart from Christ's death, we have no hope. There is no salvation for sinners such as us. And the wrath of God remains upon us if Christ did not take it upon himself. So the resurrection means nothing apart from the cross of Christ. But the opposite is just true. The cross of Christ means nothing apart from the resurrection. The resurrection vindicates everything that Jesus said and did. So in verse 8, our summary verse, as we think about the placement of the resurrection in witness, we see that Jesus doesn't actually there spell out any of the particulars, but he says simply to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. And no doubt, the disciples were to witness to everything that they had seen and heard. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his teachings, his example, and uh, and this is why they're to be witness to everything. They've, they, they wrote the Gospels, for one thing. But this is also why when the 11 apostles are looking for someone to replace Judas, Judas betrayed Christ and then took his own life. So the apostles were notched down to 11. And they're looking for the replacement. And the apostle Peter stipulates that whoever the replacement is must be someone who was with Jesus. He says, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So again, 
It's, impos- uh, it's, it's uh, important for the apostles to have seen it all, to have been with Jesus through everything. But then listen to Peter's very next words. He continues, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. He doesn't say a witness to his life, or not even a witness to his death, but he says a witness to his resurrection. In the mind of Peter, there's something special about the resurrection. And we see in verse 3 that indeed, Jesus made a special point of proving to his disciples that he had in fact risen bodily from the dead. He didn't just leave the tomb, shake the dust off, and then ascend directly to heaven. Rather, we read, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And uh, I read up on this. We don't know exactly what the 40 days, uh, what, what the significance of those days is. Scripturally speaking, 40 days is, is often a time of, of preparation uh, or a time of, of God's special working, uh, some, such as when um, Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness before his own ministry. And now we have 40 days of, of Christ uh, appearing to his apostles and preparing them before their ministry. But the word for uh, proofs here is defined by one of the major Greek dictionaries as that which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner, or simply a proof. We know from Luke's gospel that at first, when the woman reported that the tomb was empty and Jesus had risen, the apostles didn't believe it. Luke, about the report from the woman, he writes, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And another time when Christ appeared out of thin air in the room that they were in, Luke records, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And as further evidence, Christ asked for food. Because apparently spirits don't need food. And they gave him a fish, and Luke writes, and he took it and ate before them. So surely the fact that the resurrected Christ appeared bodily to his disciples is central to the gospel account. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul includes... Christ's post-resurrection appearances in what he calls matters of first importance. Starting in verse 3 then, he writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, what I want to emphasize here is not so much the proofs that the apostles themselves received from Jesus of his true and bodily resurrection, In fact, we don't really receive many of those proofs. We see a smattering of things in the Gospels. But rather, what I want to emphasize is the central importance of the resurrection to the Gospel that the Apostles are to proclaim. 
it was important that the apostles themselves could know without a shadow of a doubt that Christ had risen in order that they might be able as assured eyewitnesses to testify to others. And that's actually what we see uh, is the function of the word witness in the book of Acts. It's actually speaking to those who had the ability to eyewitness and to say, yes, I saw him. Jesus rose from the dead. And to this day, I will say that it remains one of the strongest arguments. This is something of an aside, but it remains one of the strongest arguments in favor of the historicity of the resurrection, that the apostles were willing to die for their belief that indeed Christ had risen. And I read last week, I can't recall who wrote it, but they said, liars make bad martyrs. That's a good line. Liars make bad martyrs. Right? If you're making something up and someone is, is ready to kill you for it, well, at that point, you're going to say, okay, okay, you know, I'm, I'm just joking. It's, I'm not serious. No one dies for something that they know is a fable. And even critical uh, Bible scholars, those who don't believe in the historicity of a lot that's, that's in Scripture, even the most critical Bible scholars will agree that, yes, it is an assured fact that the apostles believed they saw the resurrected Christ. And the most plausible explanation for that is that they did. And so that, I think, is, is a, a good apologetic argument, a good um, strong argument in favor of the historicity of the resurrection, that the apostles were witnesses unto death. But now returning to the, the centrality of the resurrection, listen to what Paul says in Romans 10 about how one is saved. He writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what we see in Acts is that Christ's resurrection and his consequent ascension and enthronement, and really those things are all sort of one package deal in Scripture, the resurrection is the central event that, again, confirms Christ's identity as the promised son of David who would usher in the everlasting kingdom of God. And this is because in the Davidic covenant, God promised David that one of his descendants would have an eternal throne. He promised in 2 Samuel 7, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what he says to David. And David writes a prophetic word in Psalm 16 that this promised one, his descendant, will not see bodily decay. He writes, for you, Lord, I added Lord, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he's filled with the Spirit, he remembers this prophecy and he quotes it in his sermon in Acts 2. And then Listen to what he says after he quotes that very text from David. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. According to Peter, if Jesus had been raised up, and there are many eyewitnesses to say that he had, if Jesus 
had been raised up, then what this means is that he is the promised son of David. And what that means is that the kingdom of God has arrived. And this is why in verse 3 of our passage this morning, we see Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God. It's because in his ascension, Jesus will begin his kingly reign. He will take his heavenly throne. And his kingdom, we know, won't be established in full until he comes again. But in another sense, we know that it is already here in the midst of Uh, as Christ dwells in the midst of his people. And his kingdom of grace advances against the kingdom of Satan. And more and more people are brought from darkness into his marvelous light. As that happens, the kingdom of God grows. And again, this reign of Christ begins with the resurrection, with his triumph over death. One of the things I hope we see this morning is that the resurrection and the enthronement of Christ They're not just an appendix to the gospel, but they are the very hope of the gospel. Because in the resurrection that Christ shows that he is able to conquer all of our enemies, even the very last enemy, which is death itself. So the resurrection, brothers and sisters, it is central to our witness. Christ died for sinners. Please tell people that. Tell people to take hold of the mercy that is theirs, that is freely offered to them in Christ. But also tell them that he rose again from the dead, that they too might have newness of life. And the resurrection is, is central to our own assurance as well. I'd say to you, I'd, I'd submit that if any of you, if your faith is faltering right now, if you are wondering, is scripture true? Is it really the word of God? one of the areas I might suggest you start is thinking about the resurrection. If Christ rose from the dead, that means he is who he says he was. And if he is who he says he was, then what he said about everything is true. And he said about God's word that it could not be broken. Jesus says of the scriptures that every word is true. And so the resurrection is this sound starting point for us to consider the identity of Christ. And if Christ can confirm this for us, then we know that our faith is secure. We know we have a reliable word. Lastly, the resurrection is central to our own comfort. In a time in which we see a lot of death, uh, death uh, around us, Surely in in, in our own lives, as we know people who have uh, passed, death globally around the world, death in war, uh, surely this is a time in which people need to be comforted. And as Christians, we ought to remember Christ's resurrection. Paul says it is the hope of the gospel. And by the resurrection, by looking to that hope, by looking to to the day in which we'll join Christ. It's looking to that day that gives us patience. It gives us strength to wait with patience and hope and confidence. So brothers and sisters, the living Christ gives power to our witness and our witness concerns the living Christ. And that's what we celebrate this morning. That's what we celebrate every Lord's Day that He Himself meets with us in His power, and that as we leave, 
He goes with us in his power. And so let's be his witnesses. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You, God, that You showed in Christ that You have power over death, that You can conquer sin and death and darkness and usher in an everlasting kingdom. Lord, we look forward to that kingdom. Help us to be witnesses to Christ. Lord, to warn people of the coming judgment and to admonish them to look to Jesus and to look to His cross for the forgiveness of their sins and to hope in Him for newness of life. Would You do that? Would You make us bold witnesses who speak the Gospel as we ought to, with confidence, with assurance, with full conviction? Lord, continue to be with us now in our tower of worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.